turn with me to Romans chapter 8 as we continue to go through the letter that Paul had written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church that was in Rome that had been enduring persecution and had many more persecutions um, severe to come. He has a word for them and through his word for them, a word for us. So it's Romans chapter 8, begin reading in uh, verse 28, which is the verse that we covered last week, but we'll land there for our context. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us. You speak to us by your spirit through your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to obey, and that you would um, continue to call inwardly even through the word preached this morning to us all. And then we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I look at my Bible, there's just a paragraph that starts at verse 26, so I can't help myself. I had to start at verse 26. So let's start in Romans chapter 8, um, beginning in verse 26. <clears throat> the word of the Lord. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. So last week, we just landed on verse 28. So Romans 8, 28, as we said last week, famous verse. Lots of most Christians know it, especially Reformed Christians know it. We, we say it a lot, for God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we, you know, mostly a lot of what we said about it last week is, you know, the way that it's translated from the Greek there is like, you know, all things, God is working in all things for the good. And it starts off, for those who love God, he is at work in all things for the good who are called according to his purpose. And we stopped there, talked a little bit about his purpose, but what we said about his purpose last week was there is a purpose, there is a plan, there is a design, there is an end game. Um, so the sermon title, after I wrote it, I thought, ooh, that doesn't sound good. And then after I read it again, I thought, ooh, that sounds good. If I write a book, that's going to be the name of my book, The End of the Church. And then some people buy it because it's like, there'll be, well, about time. And then other people look and say, oh, I can't believe this. Is, there'll never be a time on earth when there's not a church for Christ will build his church. So if you if you thought about it a minute here, then you probably have caught on the fact that the end of the church is like we use the word end in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, which you can tell somebody is a Presbyterian or not, but do they know the answer to this, which is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the chief end Chief, meaning the primary, the base, the, the, the most important, the main end, meaning the, the telos, the, the end purpose for which we are created, the, the reason for being of our creation, number one, glory of God. 
And the second being that we might enjoy him forever. So even in this first catechism question that we see is this answer of the, the primacy of the glory of God. So that all that we do, all that we say, all that we are is to be done for his glory. As the Bible said, not to us, not to us, but to you be the glory in all things, preeminency. But we also see the second part, that we would enjoy him forever. Because it could be that you could glorify something, but you're not enjoying it. You're having to do it. You have to do it. But to enjoy God, and it's really something that the Westminster divines, as they're called, or Puritan forefathers and these people who just can seem, um, certainly have been characterized as just stodgy, just kind of you know, mean-spirited, legalistic people, would say that one of the chief ends of man is the enjoyment of God forever. The enjoyment of God forever. If you're a believer and you're not enjoying God in your obedience, if you're not enjoying God in your worship, if you're not enjoying God in, your, um, in, in everything that you do, I'm not going to sit here and question your salvation. But what I would do is if you have no enjoyment of God at all, I'm going to question your salvation. There's got to be this joy of God. There's got to be this, even in our times of depression and darkness and, you know, the, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Not because there's no darkness, not because there's no shadow of death, not because there's no problems, not because I just walk around cheerfully, joy, joyful and being chipper all the time, but in my trials, in my suffering, in my times of doubt and anger at God at times, I know he's with me. He loves me. He puts up with me. He's able to, I mean, I know, here's what I'm thankful for when I get it. <laughs> People in our congregation who just overlook some of the things that I say sometimes. Don't always do it. I'm a pastor and a preacher, and you're supposed to be listening to what I say as it is the Word of God, but there's lots of stuff that I kind of say off the cuff. There's lots of things I say at the beginning. There's lots of little things that I just say out of nervousness, out of excitement, out of whatever, and if I listen to the tape later, I'll go like, ooh, gosh, I said that. And then I'll make mistakes sometimes. Last week, I think I said that... Um, Abraham was Jacob's father. No, and thank you for recognizing the fact and that nobody's sitting out there with a laptop that's pointing at it and going, no, that's not right, that's not right. But if, I mean, heresy or something comes out, please feel free to stand up and say anathema or something. I don't want to go that far. But understanding that even in that, and you know if you have friends, if you've sinned against people, if you do, sometimes you just fail. And it's a friend who's able to say, or a a spouse or a parent or whoever that's able to say, you know I love you. I, I forgive you. I understand. It happens. And we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ who sympathizes with our weaknesses so that the enjoyment of God leads to our glorification of God. And so those things in the life of a believer are united so that while we wish we could perfectly glorify him all the time, while we wish we could perfectly enjoy him all the time, we still struggle with the flesh. We still walk in a world where we do not walk by sight. We walk in faith and by hope. And one day we will be seeing him in fullness and be glorified, as we've seen here. Be able to, if, if things like this work in heaven, we're able to, able to say, you know, remember that time and this thing happened what was up with that? And then if they're able to say, well, let's take a look at it. And these are all the things I did. This is everything that happened. And if this, you know, it's kind of like the George Bailey thing with 
um, a wonderful life. You know, if you never live, these are things that happen. You know, something like that where you're able to see if this hadn't have happened. So you get to see this tapestry of God where he says, this is the purpose Then I'm sure in heaven, as hard as it may have been here, you look at that and say, I see. Yes and amen. You might not say that was a good thing that happened in the sense of it just being good necessarily. Lots of hard and difficult and evil things happen. But understanding that God did have a plan and a purpose and a reason and that he is at work. And so that's what we rest in now is that we have to trust that he is at work in all these things. That there is a purpose, that there is an end and that there is a purpose what he says here so as we come out of verse 28 he's saying that for those who are called according to his purpose and so as we hit these this next sometimes called the golden chain of salvation but it's just these things that Paul is pointing out by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is saying this is the purpose this is the tell us this is what he's doing this is what I'm talking about this is the calling and he even is going to talk about where this calling comes in so we're looking at you know, explaining what is the purpose of the church, the end of the church, the chief end of the church. And here we'll see that the context is, is for the strengthening and encouragement of believers who are going through difficulties, which is everybody from time to time. So we can all understand what it means to go through trials and tribulations. And the Holy Spirit here through Paul is telling us that God will be glorified by glorifying us even. So we have this Glorification, and that how we will glorify God is by being by Him conforming us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, which is what we see in these passages. So let's look first, verse twenty nine says, "For those whom He foreknew." So it means to know beforehand. Hey, that wasn't hard. So He knew who, who are we talking about? Those He knew beforehand. So who did God know beforehand? Well. In a certain sense, God knows everybody beforehand. So, I mean, God knows everything, knows future, past, present, knows everything. So, but he's obviously not talking about everybody, because if he was talking about everybody, then we would not have him say, those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Everybody is not predestined to that, in order they might be a firstborn, that they're predestined, to, and he calls them. Not everybody is called inwardly like this. Not everybody is justified. Not everybody will be glorified. So this foreknowledge is a subset of humanity. There are people whom God has foreknown. And it also, some people will say, that means that God looks into the future and he sees people who are going to have faith and he sees that, oh, those are the ones that are going to believe, so those are the ones that I'm going to call. It's like, no, that's not really the way the word foreknown would work in this context and it doesn't really make much sense. What it does is it puts humanity in the driver's seat. And we know from the Bible that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. That without the work of the Holy Spirit um, in our hearts, you'll never be able to see the truth of these things. But faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And as the Holy Spirit works in his word in the hearts of, of a non-believer, I mean, how do you respond in faith without faith? I mean, you have to ask for faith in order to have faith. You know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg type thing. And what he's telling, here, telling us here is those whom he calls are the ones whom he has foreknown. Now, there was a man that stood, you know, telling the story, a man standing before Jesus that says, I've done all these things in your name. I've healed in your name. Um, I've, done, I've, I've, I've done great things in your name, O Lord. 
And then Jesus looks at him and says, depart from me, you worker of unrighteousness, of lawlessness. I've never known you. I never knew you. And of course, Jesus, and his, he, he knows the man, he's the son of God, he knows. But to know somebody, especially in the Old Testament way, the, the Hebrew way of looking at this knowledge, it, it, it means, it really means foreloved. Those whom I have foreknown. To know someone in this way is to, to know them intimately and lovingly and in this relational way. So those I've foreknown, those I have foreloved is a, is a perfectly good way to say that word. So just hold your place here. I think it's good for us to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. So this is got to go a little further into the Bible. Um. You get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all these little books of Paul that are put together there. But Ephesians chapter 1, I'm just going to read beginning of verse 3. And, and, and listen, for this is Paul still writing this is to a, a, you know, the church in Ephesus. And he talks about being predestined to adoption and also his calling and all these things. But just listen to, to what he says here so we can take this teaching and apply it to what we are in, in Romans too. So Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. That means being purchased out of slavery of sin. We have this redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this purpose of God for us is what he is now outlining for us and saying, those whom he has foreknown. He has also, in Romans 8.29, he has also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So the word predestined gets a lot of play. Um, predestination is a, you know, a, um, a Calvinistic, reformed word that's used a lot. I remember I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I started going to a uh, Reformed and Presbyterian Church, and they started talking about predestination, and they were talking like a lot about predestination in Sunday school class, and I was like, and I, and I like to tell people, because this is where I was at the time, I didn't really know what predestination was, I just knew it was bad. And so I was like, you guys are going too far. So we had some conversations about what predestination means and, and this sort of thing, but here what it means is foreordained, it, it don't use the word destination too much because that's kind of, that's the way we have to do it in English, but in Greek it doesn't really mean a pre, 
destination. Kind of does, but something that God has foreordained. So you're foreknown and you've been foreordained to some end. And what this end is, for those whom he has foreknown, he has, he has foreordained this end. Now, and it is conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ, ultimately, that we would be glorified. So I just want to kind of take this point to make sure that as we're listening to this, as believers, what we have to understand is this is your assurance of salvation. This is your assurance. This is your assurance of um, continuing in the faith, the perseverance of your faith, that if God has foreknown you and God has foreordained you to be conformed to the likeness image of his son and that he is going to call you, he's going to justify you, and he's going to, he has, you know, if you're a believer, he has called, he has justified, he even says he has glorified then he's got you in his hand. He will do these things. He's the one that foreordained. He's the one that foreloved. He's the one that called. He's the one that did all these things. Therefore, soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. That's it. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. To quote a hymn outside of scripture, that the preacher preaching the truth. But we have been predestined for Glory. And here he gives us an idea, what do you mean by glory? And that's a whole big old subject right there. But one of the things it means is conformity to the image of his son. So that doesn't mean that we're all going to end up looking like Jesus, whatever that is. It's hard to go believe that he's actually going to look a little bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi. But whatever he looks like didn't matter. What it is is who he was inwardly, who he was as, as, a, as, as, a, as a, third person, a second person of the Trinity. What is he like? the Son of God, and being conformed to his image because we were originally in the garden, Adam and Eve, created in the likeness and image of God. And so all people, everybody, every single human being who has ever been conceived is, was in the likeness and image of God. Therefore, they have dignity. Therefore, they have worth. Therefore, they have value. Therefore, they, um, we are to love them um, and especially those who have been called by Christ into, to himself because his special love has been placed on them, and therefore we are not to turn anyone away whom Christ is calling to himself. And Christ is calling the world to himself through the gospel, through the church. One of the purposes of the church is to join in God's calling of people. But this conformity to the image of Christ is not just are we born, are we created, and we're inherently in the image and likeness of God, even as it's marred by sin, and we have the fall that took place in the garden, and we say, I'm corrupt in every part of my being, in the children's catechism. It doesn't mean you're awful as you possibly could be, although Dr. Kelly always hears his voice saying, although we come closer than we might think at times, but what it means is there's not one part of us that hasn't been touched by sin. There's not one part of our lives, our thoughts, or something that's not in some way been corrupted in some way through sin. But still, the worst of sinners still being in the image of Christ and not beyond the reach of God's love and ability to save. So that's why we are to love our enemies. That's why we are to preach the gospel because we have no idea whom God is calling to himself, but we do know he does it through the preaching of the church. And that means this preaching and also you professing and being his witnesses in the world as we're telling people that we all need Christ and we all fall short of this glory of God. But this conformity to the image of his son, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. 
So it's kind of interesting. He gives us a new commandment. He spent a lot of his time saying, you guys keep heaping up all these commandments. So, you know, the, a lot of the Pharisees and the scribes, what they would do is like, we can't, we have these Ten Commandments, so we have all these other laws, and lest we um, come close to breaking those, let's make more laws so that we don't ever break that law. So one of the things you see in your, in your um, Bible, in the Old Testament Scripture, is the word Lord, that has a capital L, and then it has capital ORDs. So you got to look in the Old Testament, you know what I'm talking about. So it's, it's just a weird way to write Lord. And what it is, that is the tetragrammaton, it's called, the four-lettered name of God, yod heh vav Yahweh. And the, the, the Jews at one point in time decided that they highly understood the commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So what they had a rule is like, we won't even say the word. And it's like, lest we take it in vain. So that's why when you hear me read and I see the tetragrammaton, it's the word Lord, I'll say Yahweh. Because that's as, as well as we know how to pronounce the word. And if we use his name properly, to take his name in vanity as nothingness goes far beyond cuss words we may use. It goes, when somebody says hallelujah, they're saying hallelujah, Yahweh, Allah, praise to Yahweh. So somebody just going around saying hallelujah, it's like, you just, you're using his name like it's nothing. Why are you taking his name in vain? Or a Christian who goes forth and says, God says this and God says that. You're taking his name in vain because he has not sent you to say that. So we have to be careful that the words of our mouth are directly from him. We're his, we're his, uh, we're, we're his what's it, ambassadors. We're supposed to only speak and pray in his name. So as we go forth, we go forth bearing the name of Christ. We even call ourselves Christians. And that was originally like a, a, a little bit of a smack on people. It's like they called them the little Christ, the little Christians running around. And then the Christians were like, hey, yeah, I like that. We're going we're to take that name. And so start calling ourselves Christians. But you've taken the name of Christ. Don't take it in vain. Don't take it for nothing. Don't act like that means nothing in your life or you're violating that commandment. But Jesus would always, some, the commandments for the Sabbath day. It's like, don't do any, you know, thou shalt not do any work. You, you manservant, maidservant, all these, you know, the commandments. So what they were, would do a long time ago, and I guess some people still do it today, it's like, let's heap up rules upon rules upon rules, lest we end up violating a commandment. My favorite from the Mishnah, this, uh, uh, anyways, the uh, commentary on the Old Testament from the te Jewish teachers from way back, what the, one of the things was, if a, a stone wall falls on a person, you, and it's the Sabbath day, we can't do any work. But you can't let the guy die. So what you can do is you can remove enough stones to keep that guy from dying so he'll live tomorrow. Then after the Sabbath, you can go back and you can get the rest of the stones off. And then Jesus intentionally would violate stuff like that. And he's like, he would, say, he would um, you know, cure somebody on the Sabbath. And then they look at him like, oh, you broke the Sabbath. He's like, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's, that's, that's amazingly high Christology. That means he's claiming for himself divinity, actually, because only God has the power to do that. And he says, you're, you, you're heaping up burdens for others that you yourselves can't bear. And here he says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. This is Jesus speaking elsewhere. And the new commandment is love one another, which is not a new commandment because the sum of the commandments is Love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But what Jesus says, love one another even as I have loved you. So how's that a new commandment? And it's a new commandment because the sacrificial nature of Christ's love. God himself, from holiness and glory, comes down 
in the form of a servant, humble, we'll call this humiliation. And we see it in Philippians chapter 2 where he humbles himself even to the point of the shameful death of the cross for those who would, for us, that he might save believers, humbling himself. And then he says, you want to be a godlike? And so we think of somebody being godlike. If God were to come down, it's like, goodness, God's coming down. You know, it's like this some kind of Marvel movie or something. You know, it's like, but when God came down, he didn't tell anybody about some humble shepherds. He was born in a manger. He was born poor. And he humbled himself. He didn't elevate himself. He, he, he gave himself to the least of these. And he gave himself to the most of these. He didn't hold back anything. He loved everybody because we're all in the same condition, fallen in Adam. And we all need Christ. And this is what the church, the believer, has been predestined to be conformed to, and that's what we call sanctification, which is the word that comes, Latin word, sanctus, from the word holy. Holification just doesn't sound right, but we're becoming more and more holy. Supposed to be, when you become a believer, you're set apart, you're holy. You're called a saint. There's another Latin word they've thrown at us in our Bibles, but you're hagias. You're the, you're the holy ones. You've been set apart for God's purpose. That's done. But then we're supposed to gradually die more to sin, live more to righteousness. And how do we know what that looks like? It's supposed to look like Christ. Now, Christ came for a specific purpose of living a perfect life in our place and then dying on the cross in our place to give us his righteousness, to take upon himself our sin. That's not your job. It's above our pay grade. We completely depend on the righteousness of Christ given to us, and then he sends us his spirit, whereby we might be conformed more and more to be like him. And that's what we want to see. Perfect obedience from Christ. He obeyed every, he was born under the Mosaic law, and he obeyed all that. Perfect obedience. And then the moral laws is a summary of, of the nature of God, that you love the Lord thy God with all the heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And this is what it looks like. And the last six commandments being love your neighbor yourself. You don't steal, you don't cheat, you don't commit adultery, you don't bear false testimony, you don't covet, you don't do all these things. But not so that God will love me, not so that I can get saved, but because there's this inner impulse that the Holy Spirit continues to develop in me as he drives me into his word, he sends me to church, we partake of baptism and the Lord's Supper and all these things and they continue to come together as we're praying with and for one another and living life together with one another as believers, that the Holy Spirit is at work in and through these things to conform us to the image of Christ. And that ultimate transformation when we're in heaven to be conformed to the image of his son, that's glorification. I mean, that's, that's glorification. There's going to be no sin. There's going to be no pain. There's going to be none of these things. But mostly it's like you're going to be Christ-like in his nature, in the way he would think and feel about everything. And that's what we want now. So this is the ultimate destiny for the believer, being predestined to be conformed to his image in order that he might be, Jesus might be firstborn among many brothers. So it's just saying, and there's a lot that we could look at there, but firstborn means his preeminence. He was the first. He's the one that calls us. Uh, he's the one that, that has done the work of being able to have many men, women, children become brothers in Christ. And so it's a family 
It's this union. It's not just when you get in heaven, he's going to have all these beings that are worshiping. And so he's because of brothers. And he's going to be the firstborn. He's, the, he's your big brother. He's the guy that did it all for us. And so we will glorify him as we come to him. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, he also called. Now he goes back to what Paul had said in verse 28. Who, all things working together for who? Those he called according to purpose. So this calling are people who have already been foreknown and predestined to be conformed, and then he does this calling. And so there's two ways we look at calling in Scripture. One is we call every single person to turn to Christ. We call every single person to acknowledge their sin. We call every single person to, to, to say, I, I, know the, I see, I know these things to be true. I need Christ. I desire to know him more. And I know I do not deserve this love from God. But I know that in Christ there is love, there's forgiveness, there's this relationship, and I, I want that. So we call people to their need for that. We call people to say that Jesus Christ turns no one away who comes to him. All who come to me are by no means cast out. And all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we, as the church, gathered and scattered in the world, our mission is, as we're going in the world, to make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. So it's disciples. That's what we're making. We're supposed to be disciples. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, that means what you're supposed to be doing is being a witness of Christ and what he's done for humanity who would turn to him in faith. There is a sacrifice that is available for sin. There is a relationship that is available through Christ. There is this great salvation. And how shall we neglect such a great salvation, as we're told in Hebrews? But there is this inward calling to which any believer has said, yeah, it wasn't just an outward call. You get a thousand people lined up. You, you, you present the gospel. You tell them, you know, the, you know our, our fallen nature. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He came to life on the third day. Um, it says it is finished on the cross. And then God uh, releases him from the pangs of death and saying that death has no power over him. He has defeated death forever. And for those who believe in him are united to him in his death, in his resurrection, and will be glorified with him just by believing and calling upon his name, then that is the outward call, but there is this inward call where you just go, yeah. I mean, why do you believe what you believe? And when it comes down to its most basic, most basic thing is, I just do. I just do. And then it says, well, do you have reasons for it? Then you're supposed to be prepared for reason for the hope that's within you. Yeah, I got lots of reasons, lots of logical reasons, so that you'll begin to see that belief in God himself is not, as R.C. Sproul has said, it's not a logic problem, it's a moral problem. And so that most people, that the Bible says, mankind who reject God are suppressing God in their sin, that they don't want to know what they know, and it's this suppression that takes place. And sometimes your sinful 
just how evilness can get in the way, but sometimes what we would see as our personal goodness can get in the way. I don't need this. You're heaping up more and more demands on my life, but what we see is as the church goes forward with the Word of God to the world, um, the Holy Spirit works in that so that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ, and there's this inward call of God, this as Nicodemus, the Pharisee, was talking to Christ in the garden at night, and he says, you know, you know, Jesus says, you must be born again. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again from above. And he's like, what does this mean? You know, he's like, you don't even get it. You, know, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you've been born. God has to do something. And so, but we are called to do something too. And then the response to what the inward call does is our response too. It's something we're called to do, to believe, to profess, to follow. And then he says, and those whom he called, notice too, he's the one who did the foreknowing. He is the one who is predestined. He is the one that has called. And those whom he has called, he is the one who's justified. And those whom he has justified, he is also glorified. He has done these things, not we ourselves. And this next thing is justification. Chapters 1 through 4, go back, watch all those sermons. They were all about justification. Okay, so we'll just move forward. But basically, what justification is, it's a, it means it's the dikaiosene, which is a word for righteousness. So you have been righteousified, which again, just doesn't work in English. So they say justified, because to be just is to be right. And so you see you have that. But there has been a righteousness that has been declared in God's courtroom for the believer, so that you are legally declared to be right. It's called the great exchange. He became sin on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. So what is happening in our justification is Jesus didn't become sinful on the cross. God didn't look at him and go, gosh, you've been terrible. He's like, no, I am imputing to you. I am putting to your credit. I am putting on your, in your person all the debt of sin of those whom we're calling. And then... He gets punished for that. He receives the penalty, death. His blood is spilled for those people. And then, those who are united to him by faith, we don't necessarily become righteous. We also have credited to ourselves the righteousness of God that he gives to us. So in the same way that Jesus becomes sin on the cross, we become the righteousness of God in this life when we're justified. And that's what happens to a believer when they turn to God. You are immediately justified. Sanctification, conformity to the image of God, behaving more and more like Christ, dying more and more to sin. A lot of people look at the church and they're like, my goodness, if I look at Christians, why would I ever want to follow Christ? It's like, because the gospel is, there's forgiveness for sin in Jesus Christ. And you should be able to look at the church and see the beauty of it. We ought to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ with righteousness and holiness in our lives. We ought to. But when we don't, we need to be quick to say, I confess how far short I come. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving a wretch like me. And then the Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives to to help us to become more like him. Because as a believer, we don't just say, hey, I've got to do better so God will love me more and my life will go better. We want to do better because we feel the wretchedness of our sin. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. Not just because it hurts people, not just because it causes problems, not just because it messes things up, but just I just don't want to be like that. And most people, whether they're believers or not, they kind of have that feeling because God has placed us in our hearts. That there is a, we were created as moral beings. And then we have this holy God 
who says, I cannot let sin into my presence that I've provided a way in the sacrifice of my son so that I can be just and justifier of those who come to me by faith. So he's predestined to be called, and he's called those, and he's also justified the ones that he's called, and then those who he's justified, he's also glorified. Now, glorification is an interesting thing here because it's past tense. Because we can say, okay, I can see as a believer I've been called. I can see as a believer I've been foreknown. I've been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his image. I can see where I've been called. I can see where I've been justified. But I don't see it as a glorification yet. And there's a sense in which, right, it's just such, a, it's called the prophetic future or something. It's like, it's such a done deal that he says it's already done. It's like, you're, I got you, you're saved. I got you covered. You know, I, this is already done. This glorification is so promised, so, so sure in the mind of God for his people that it is done. But I think there's also a sense in which you are glorified right now because you carry within you the Holy Spirit. You carry within you this, this treasure in a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power of God is not from us, but from the gospel. So in a sense, we have now been glorified. We carry the glory of God. We are aware of the glory of God. But as, I can't remember, the guy, it's the now and not yet stuff. And I like to say it's like, yeah, we've been glorified now, but you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, we have not yet seen what awaits us. It's not entered into the mind of man the things that await us. And he even says here in Romans I am sure that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. He's already said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, as a believer, you're not going to fall short. You're going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye to be glorified in body, in mind, and spirit, that you will be perfected in every way to be like Christ. And as Philippians 2.11, he says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So at the end of the church is glorification, conformity to the image of his Son, finally and fully. And the mission of the church is, in the meantime, to follow Christ, and he is building his church. We are to be about his business, telling others of the need for Christ because of his, our sinful nature before a holy God, and of his willingness to save all who call on him and his name and be saved from the guilt of our sin and the reality of the wrath of God. And on the cross, God proved his love for his people and proved his justice. And as we've seen in this passage, it is God who foreknows because we were lost. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the unlovely. It is God who predestines those whom he's loved. It is he who calls, it is he who justifies, it is he who has glorified. And therefore, all the praise is due to his name. All of it, beginning to end. Not to us. Look at me, look what I did, I did so good. If it's up to you, you've got reason to doubt your salvation because you're going to see your faith, your emotions, your feelings. It, we're fickle, we're back and forth, we all over the place. But if he's the promise taker, and he's the promise maker, and he even gives us, as we come to his table today, saying, 
I've given myself for you. This is my table given to you. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Not your blood. Our blood is what was deserved. Our blood was not sufficient to even cover our own sin. But Christ, such great value being the Son of God, His blood, His death, His righteousness, sufficient for all who will come to Him. So when we come to, when we hear the gospel and it's united by faith, that is what we call a means of grace. God is sending grace to you. He is changing you. He is conforming you. He is convicting you. He is calling you. He is drawing you. As we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves every day, as we say, cheer up. You are a lot worse than you think you are, but God's grace is far greater than you could ever imagine. And if you are believing in him, there is Spirit, revivification, I like that word, bringing life to you. And he says, come to my table so that you can taste, so that you can see, so that you can feel that I am renewing my covenant with you as you renew the covenant with you. This is some churches that sometimes do this thing where they say, hey, we're going to have a rededication. So every eye, I'm not telling you to do this, but you know, so every head bowed, every eye closed. If you want to rededicate your life, come down to the altar. Okay, you're like, we don't do that. We're coming to the table, coming to a table of grace, coming to a table of mercy, coming to a table of, of, of renewal that the God says, for those who are in me, if you've been baptized with water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you've entered in the covenant with God, he says, let's keep doing it. I love G.K. Chesterton has this little thing he talks about little children, how they just want to do something over and over and over and over again. Pick me up, pick me up, pick me up, pick me up. My little grandson, Bear, had, he, he don't get near him with the glasses on because I've trained him that this is funny. But I have my $1 glasses that you've all seen, these weird-looking reading glasses. So these are not. I will not let him grab these glasses. So but he's just like, he's like, he grabbed my glasses. And I laugh, and he just laughed, ah, and he gives them back. And I put them back on my face. He grabbed them again. He laughed, ah, and I put them back on. He grabbed them again. And we laughed, ah, we could have done that for hours. It's the most entertaining thing I've ever seen. I was like, we should market this. Somebody, Milton Bradley, come on, this is the glass-grabbing game. Where has everybody been with this? But he says, children like that, they exult in the monotony. They, res- they, they exult in this. And he says, maybe our Heavenly Father is much more childlike than we, and we have just grown old. So that every day the Father sees the sun, and he, the sunrise, and he just says, do it again. Let's do it again. Do it again. And it says that the angels in heaven rejoice at the salvation of a sinner. And he sees us at the table. And it's just the rejoicing in saying, do it again. Do it again. Experience the joy of my salvation. Come to me and keep coming to me because I exult in giving myself to you. Let's do it again. So let's pray. Father God, you've given yourself to us, for us. And so we pray that you would help us to live our lives in such a way that doesn't bring shame upon your name that we live our lives in such a way that, that you give us wisdom in the way that we think and feel about things, that you would give us grace to be able to know that we're imperfect and we still need forgiveness, that we might be gracious and, for, and, and give grace, that you would teach us to be gentle and lowly because that's how you are, that we would be gentle and lowly in heart, that we would be easy people to be around, that we would indeed fight off wolves, when necessary, as you do with your rod and your staff. It gives us comfort. But Lord, we're thankful that you don't treat us like, like wolves. 
that for those you love, for your children, you're patient, you're gracious, and you love continuing to lavish this grace upon us. So we thank you and pray that you'll help us to continue to, to, to preach the gospel to ourselves, that your spirit might well up within us and be overflowing onto others as well. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.